One of the interesting things that we take for granted today is the morality of nations. Today's international news is couched in moral terms and moral language, be it wars or be it economic woes, nations are said to be acting morally or immorally in a way that they treat their minorities, for example, or in the way they fail in their undertakings and their promises. And so we have blockades against evil empires and we refuse to deal with nations that are undemocratic, unless, of course, they're big and powerful ones who can make us rich and then we'll deal with them. And one of our Prime Ministers said that global warming is the greatest moral issue of the age. Yet at the same time, within our own nation, in our desperate search for tolerance and acceptance and inclusiveness, we're relativising all morality. So that apart from criminality, nothing is right, nothing is wrong, people are free to do whatever they choose to do and woe betide anybody who criticises anybody or condemns anybody or judges anybody for the choices that they're making in life. So internationally we have higher and higher morality and personally and nationally we have amorality. Well today we start a new series on the book of Amos which speaks of nations and morality. It's a great read and really important that we work through these what are called minor prophets. They're not minor except that they're smaller and shorter than the other big prophets rather than leaving them as the unread parts of our Bible. Go home and have a look at your Bible and see which bits you've read a lot because of the kind of markings on the side where it's got dirty because you open it regularly. And my guess is it's this little back end of the, of the Old Testament that will be pure and unsullied by your eyes, which is a bad thing, I take it. So let's open up these Old Testament books and Amos is one of the most accessible and interesting and powerful of these minor prophets, as we call them. And so we start where the book starts by filling out some details about the man and his times. The word of Amos, verse 1, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Firstly, the man. He was not a professional uh, prophet, but a farmer, a shepherd. Uh, later on in chapter 7, we find out he's a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. He came from Tekoa, which if you look in the blue outline, you'll see on the back we've got this map, which we'll find helpful in understanding this passage, and we've got in a little box where Tekoa is, just uh, west of the Dead Sea, very close to Jerusalem, really, in the southern part of the kingdom Judah. Uh, is where he came from, which is surprising in some sense because most of the book you'll see he's actually preaching against Israel, the northern kingdom. He's a Victorian denouncing New South Wales. It is not the person we want to listen to, basically, mind you. I'm not sure who we want to listen to, but not a Victorian. Well, the man from Judah denouncing the people of Israel is going to be unpopular before he starts, but that's where he's come from. To understand that, we must remember the times in which he prophesied. So here is just a couple of 
simple bits of history. I know people get freaked out by dates, but the easiest date to remember in the Old Testament is King David and King Solomon because they ruled around 1000 BC. That's got to be easy to remember for people who have just passed through 2000 AD. That's the easy number to remember. King David, 1000. After King Solomon, his son Rehoboam was uh, stupid and the kingdom was split. Around 9.30, that date you don't need to remember as well, but just in the next generation or two, David's grandson, he'd all split. The northern kingdom retained the name Israel and was ruled by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and the southern kingdom of two tribes was ruled by Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And then for the rest of the Old Testament, you now have two nations, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Amos is prophesying about 150 years after that split. Around about 800 to 750 BC, we find Uzziah being king in Judah and Jeroboam II, the son of Joash, not Nebat, Jeroboam II, reigning in Israel. So we have the time span in which this man was prophesying around about 800 to 750 BC. Now, at this time, internationally, Israel was quite powerful as it had conquered its neighbour, Aram. Again, look to your map, you'll see Aram is just to the northeast of Israel. Just to the northeast of Israel. And it had been conquered by Israel, and the wealth of Aram was flowing into Israel. And so Israel was particularly wealthy at this time. There were new riches but they weren't being distributed equitably amongst the people. It was in fact a time of massive wealth and affluence and incredible injustice, immorality and most significantly irreligion. To that extent it's not all that different to the state of Australia today. Incredible wealth like we've never known before and at the same time immorality and irreligion. But there's one other thing to mention about Amos and his time, that is this funny little phrase at the end of verse 2, two years before the earthquake. Now we don't know the precise date of the earthquake, that would be really nice to know, but it was a big one and it was remembered. For years later, a couple of hundred years later when Zechariah was prophesying, he referred to the earthquake back in the days of King Uzziah. It was one of those things that, well, people remember. Uh, the blowing up of Krakatoa, you know, the, the, the blowing up of Mount Etna, the blowing up of Vesuvius. There are big events that are so enormous and tragic and extraordinary that they are remembered for centuries. There was a big earthquake in the middle of the 8th century BC and just two years before. So, this earthquake, of course, would be seen more than just the shaking of the earth but a symbol of the judgment of God shaking the very foundations of an immoral nation. Okay, let's now turn to chapter 1. And it's a chapter, as we just had read for us, about transgressions and punishment. Each of Israel's neighbours have sinned in some great fashion and God promises to come bringing punishment upon them. The sins that are recorded here are what we would call today crimes against humanity. 
the kind of war crimes which we take to the International Criminal Court in The Hague. There is a repeated pattern in the, in the poem that we have had read for us. Uh, a pattern of words that runs, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of, then fill in the name of the state, and for four, that is for repeated offences, and God is slow to anger, for repeated offences, I will not revoke the punishment because, and then the punishment is out, the, the, the sin is outlined for them, because they have done these things, and so I will send a fire upon, and then mention some town or some city or some king of the nation, and it shall devour a particular element of the nation, and then it concludes basically with, says the Lord. And that pattern controls the reading so that as it is read to us, you can follow easily as he works his way through each of the neighbours of Israel and Judah. One after another, we, we go around through Philistia, Edom, Amnon, Aram and Phoenicia. Each one is listed out for the condemnation of God. The particular crimes and details of the separate nations and the towns that God is referring to needn't detain us greatly. For it is a mounting pressure of condemnation that Amos 1 brings to the reader. And as we'll see next week, it really is a preparation for the condemnation of Judah and then Israel. And so having condemned all the neighbours, he then centres in on Judah and Israel. But that's next week's sermon, do not miss it. Have a look in quickly through the chapter. We see in verses 3 to 5, it does deal with Damascus and so we'll just go through them quickly. Damascus's other name, Syria's other name was Aram. They ran a threshing sledges over the captives of Gilead and so their king Hazael will be destroyed as will the royal family of Ben-Hadad and their city Damascus will be broken. The centre of their religious ceremonies, the Valley of Avon and the city Beth Eden will be cut off and go into exile to Kerr, a place that we're not sure exactly where it is but it doesn't sound good. Verses 6 to 8, you then move on to Philistia and Gaza, a, na a name of a town we still know of, for wiping out a complete people and selling them off to their enemies, the Edomites, they will be destroyed. We call that today ethnic cleansing. Verses 9 to 10, Tyre, that's the Phoenicians, have done the same wicked thing. And so, the same as the Philistines, they also have failed to do something more. They've failed in their covenant, that is, presumably their long-standing agreement with Israel. But it may be referring to something else. But not only have they done the wicked thing of ethnic cleansing, but they did it to a people whom they had a brotherly covenant with. And then in verses 11 to 12, we see the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, who we read pursued his brother with a sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. The vindictive assault of Edom on Israel was indicative of Edom, their father's, Esau's hatred of his brother Jacob and the way in which he kept the grudge going for year after year after year. 
And then on in verses 13 to 15, we have Ammon, who, for the, for the sake of enlarging their borders, waged an inhuman war, ripping pregnant women open. And then last of their neighbours, Moab, in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2, their lack of respect for the defeated foe burning to lime the bones of the king of Edom. It was an act of desecration and contempt, of rejoicing in the execution of your enemy and abusing his body after death. Well, it's hardly a happy chapter to come to church for, is it? You all feel better for having read Amos chapter 1, don't you? Rejoice and be glad. And then you read this kind of chapter which just grinds on for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because look at the wicked things these nations have done. It's all about God's judgment on the inhumanity of nations in their treatment of each other. Now, as I indicated earlier, the point of the poem is going to be made next week as Amos turns his prophetic insights onto Judah and Israel. But before we get there, I thought it important to pause and consider what this passage teaches us about God and the nations. And there are four main points that I want to draw to your attention this morning. Firstly, there are national gods and the God of the nations. See, each nation in the ancient world worshipped its own God or gods. Uh, the God of the Moabites was Molech. The God of the Philistines was Dagon. And so it goes on. For them, for their, these nations, the God of Israel was Yahweh. And the battle between the nations was seen as a battle between the gods. It was kind of like little boys boasting with each other about who has the strongest father. So each nation had the God and my God's better than your God and we go to war, our gods go to war and if we win that just shows my God's better than your God. But Amos and the rest of the Old Testament is saying something much more than my God's better than your God. Saying something much more about Yahweh, the God of Israel. He was not just the God of their nation, he was the God of all nations. Whether they acknowledged him or not, Yahweh was going to hold all nations to account for their actions. And not just for their wars against his people, but also for their wars against each other. For look at your Bibles and notice how the word Lord is constantly being, being printed there in the uppercase, in capital letters, L-O-R-D. That's because in the Hebrew text, it is the name of God, Yahweh, that is there. Uh, we do not like using the name Yahweh, partly because we don't really know how to pronounce Yahweh. The Jews didn't use the name Yahweh, they just put in the Lord on each occasion. But we miss something of the seriousness of the character of the feeling of the passage when we take out the word Yahweh and put it in as the Lord. It is Yahweh in verse 2 who roars like a lion from his holy hill in Jerusalem, Zion, who roars like a lion warning of the destruction that he is about to bring. I've not been to 
any of the game parks that would bring me anywhere near a lion. But I guarantee that the sound of the roar of a lion would keep me in as protective interest for my own self-being as anything else. Cowardice would be completely vindicated as sensible. When you hear the roar of the lion, you don't go out to have a look. It is the time to pull back. God, like a lion, is roaring against the nations. And as he roars against the nations, he starts each condemnation with, thus says Yahweh. And he ends with each one saying, says Yahweh. I mean, the one real exception proves the very point. It's down at the end of verse 8, you see, where our translators just don't know how to convey for us what is there in the Hebrew. For on this occasion, the Hebrew uses the word Lord. And so you wind up saying, thus says the Lord, Lord, which is a little bit difficult. And so they translate it, thus says the Lord God, and put God in uppercase, in the capitals. Because what the Hebrew is saying at that point is, thus says the Lord Yahweh. If we just kept with his name all the way through, I think the passage would be slightly easier to understand, but all the more personal and powerful. For it is Yahweh who is going to destroy the nations, not because they've attacked his people, not because they've attacked him, but because of the way in which they've fought their wars with each other, as well as with his people. Now, leaving the technicalities of translations aside, the point is that Yahweh is not just, is not a local God, a kind of national God of Israel. Rather, Yahweh is the God of all the nations. And he, Yahweh, as God, is calling upon all the nations. He's calling them to account. For second point to make about the passage is God's justice. For God's justice is not just contained within Israel and the covenant of Israel and the Ten Commandments and the like. God's justice is for all peoples and for all nations, even those who do not acknowledge him or those who have rejected him. And God's justice is concerned for national sinfulness and international justice. No area of life can be kind of cordoned off from the justice of God, as if, well, that was their culture, and in their culture, that's how they live, and so it's all right for them to do it, because, well, that's what Moabites do, that's what Philistines do, they're allowed to do what they do in their culture, that is never the case. Immorality is immorality. Whether it's culturally acceptable to a nation or not is an irrelevance, it is immorality. There is no culture or national sovereignty that will make a nation immune from the condemnation of God for its immoral practices. Cannibalism is wrong, irrespective of the cultural norm that may make it acceptable in this particular nation or in this particular people of group. It's wrong. Suti, the burning of widows on their husband's funeral pyre, was wrong irrespective of its long historical culture, irrespective of the fact that you can find some utilitarian argument in its favour of not having poor and impoverished widows left over. It's wrong. It's immoral. It's decadent. It will come under the judgment of God and bring the nation under the judgment of God. 
sacrificing children to Moloch or to the Aztec or Inca gods was wrong, even though they had never heard of Yahweh. It is not right to be sacrificing children. Wrong is wrong. And God is a God of justice. And he's not restricted in his justice by national boundaries or religious sensitivities or cultural sovereignties. The history of the missionary movement has sometimes been given a hard time by cultural relativists and anthropologists. But faced with the crimes of humanity or inhumanity that the missionaries often came across in the 19th century and into the 20th century, they did the right thing in stamping out unmitigated evil. And in fact, if they had not done it, they would have been held in contempt for allowing such dreadful practices to continue. It is kind of strangely interesting the way in which one generation can so condemn a previous generation for what it did or for what it failed to do. But back to God's justice. For God's justice is universal. Universal because God is the creator of all peoples and God is the ruler over all nations. So that nations and governments are responsible not just to themselves, like Napoleon putting his own crown on his own head, nor just to the electorate, like the secularist Democrats want to be. But remember, the electorate can vote for immorality, can't it? No, there's a higher court of appeal than just popularity and popularism just as well. Governments are responsible to God himself, whether they acknowledge him, whether they have read his word or not, or know his ways or not, they will one day have to give answer for what they have done, just as nations will give answer for what they have done. Now, history recounts for us the appalling genocides of the 20th century. Zidong, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Pol Pot, the list just goes on and on. The many awful barbarities that have taken place in Africa and are still taking place in Africa. Or that appalling Turkish genocide of the Armenians that took place in 1915 when one third of the population of Armenia were executed in one week. I mean, it was an appalling thing that happened, and one-third driven away out of their land. Oh, history is full of these appalling genocides, even in the 20th century, that are still going on into the 21st century. But of course, we need to look to our own history, not just the history of them out there, but we need to look at our own awful history of the British invasion of Australia. For well, many years I have condemned, if nobody else has, but I'm sure others have as well, the appalling invasion of Indonesia into West New Guinea, into Irian Jaya, they called it. It happened when most of the international world was asleep for a while. 
but the poor people of West New of Erie and Jaya of West New Guinea have been suffering ever since, deprived of their own land by the invasion of the Indonesians. But it was no different to the invasion of the British into Australia back in 1788. It's the same thing. One big nation moving into a little nation and just taking over the lands of peoples without so much of an invitation, just because we could. And more, we need to look not just to history and to our own history, but to our own present national sinfulness. For do you think we are now living as the people that would be pleasing to God as a nation? How can we be really? According to the Medical Journal of Australia, we have somewhere between 80 to 90,000 abortions every year in Australia. Now leave aside the, the individual woman, the agony, the dreadful, painful decisions that she may be need, making about caring for a disabled child or a child conceived in rape. There are, for individual women, appallingly difficult decisions in this whole area. Leave aside that. I'm talking about the nation as a whole. 80 to 90,000 abortions annually means that roughly a quarter of the children conceived in Australia today are aborted. As a nation with wealth unbelievable that could afford to look after all these children and more, and with readily available sexual education in all our schools and all the contraceptives that are available today, what are we doing to our families? What are we doing to our women folk that put them into such situations where nearly a quarter of the babies they conceive will be aborted? What does it say about our society and the way we're organising and constructing our world that we live like this? God will hold us to account for our barbarity, for our inhuman destruction of human life. But there's another thing about Amos 1 and God's justice that you see. That is, God's justice is slow, but certain. This is the language of that little chorus, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. God is personally involved in this punishment. It's not just the consequences, the outcomes of bad decisions and bad actions, it's the intentional personal punishment of God upon wrongdoers. Repeatedly we read God saying in Amos 1, so I will send fire upon, so I will cut off, I will break down, I will kindle a fire. Now God is not temperamental, as you and I are, just given to peak and losing control. God doesn't strike us down quickly as we sin or on the very first mistake, as soon as we make a mistake, bang, we're gone. God is slow to anger, giving people every opportunity to repent, every opportunity to seek forgiveness, 
every opportunity to make restitution and to put things right or to try to do so. God is slow and measured in his justice. But we mustn't interpret the slowness of God as if God will never act, for he is also certain in his justice. There will come a time of justice, and when that time comes, there's no turning back. It'll be too late for repentance then, too late for forgiveness again. God will not revoke the punishment. Now, caught then in this passage is the problem of the individual and the nation. To what extent am I guilty for my nation's sinfulness? To what extent am I going to pay for my nation's sins? This is a reality, a reality of the world of sin in which we live, that we are caught between individual and corporate sinfulness. You see, we're all guilty in Adam's sin, and we're all guilty in ourselves as well. This was the difficulty of saying sorry to our indigenous Australians. In one sense, it wasn't my fault. I didn't invade. I was born here. I didn't take away their land. I didn't shoot at them. I didn't oppress them. I wasn't there then when the worst things happened. But in another sense, it is my fault. For I'm living off the proceeds of our forefathers' greed and exploitation of this land. I stand and sing the national anthem. I will wave the national flag. I will cheer our national athletes. And I live in a land where the majority of the people in prison are Indigenous Australians. And that can't be right when the percentage of Indigenous Australians is so small that the majority of the people we've locked up are the people whose heritage we have taken away from them. It's not right. And I may not in one sense be personally involved, in another sense I'm a citizen of this land. I am, as you are. I cannot ultimately separate myself from my nation and take no responsibility for it and for its actions unless I migrate out of here and take up citizenship somewhere else in a land where there is no injustice. And if you can tell me where that is, I'll be very surprised. And so when our troops go to war, I go to war. And if our troops ever lose the war and our land should be overrun by the enemy, then I too will be overrun by the enemy. My home, my life will be overrun. My life is totally caught up with my nation just as your life is caught up with your nation as well. So what is the relation of the Christians and their nation? Jesus established the kingdom of God by his cross and resurrection. 
He didn't die for the sins of Israel alone. He died for the sins of the whole world. The gospel was certainly for the Jew first, but it wasn't for the Jew only. It was for all the nations of the world. For God is the creator of all the world, and God is the God of all nations, and God is the saviour of all peoples. So Christ's kingdom is not about a particular race or a particular nation, but those forgiven by his death, who acknowledge him as their risen king and who are born again by his spirit. Jesus himself told Pilate that his kingdom was not of this world. So there cannot be a Christian nation in the way that Israel was God's nation. We cannot have Christian nations. For Christian kingdom spreads over all nations in the individual beliefs, the individual commitment, the individual rebirth of peoples. Christians live in a world of God and Caesar. And we must both give to God what is God's and give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But that doesn't mean that we can't preach to Caesar and tell him of his and our responsibility and call upon Caesar to act rightly and justly for the benefits of all people. Nor does it mean that we can't pray for Caesar, that we might live in a land of justice and peace, pray for a peaceful life and a quiet life of godly and dignified in every way. In fact, the scripture tells us to pray for our rulers like this. Nor does it mean that we can't give a voice when we are given a voice or a vote in government that we shouldn't be using. In fact, we should use it to pursue justice and righteousness and campaign to remove those things that would bring the wrath of God down on our land for rest assured. Those nations, those countries, those empires, those rulers who rule in injustice and in, in, in tyranny are destroyed and have been destroyed and will be destroyed. Hitler set up the rule for a thousand years that only lasted a couple of decades. Mao Zedong and his cultural, it was wiped away very shortly thereafter and Stalin's empire lasted, Lenin's and Stalin's, for 70 years though it was going to be forever and Pol Pot's only really ran for three or four years. God knows how to bring down the tyrants and if Australia ever gives itself to that kind of injustice and corruption and genocide, then we have no grounds for ever thinking that God will not bring us down in exactly the same way. And therefore it is right that we call upon our governments to act justly and do rightly. It's right that we, that we pray for them that they will act justly and do rightly. And it's also right for us to campaign and to argue for, because we live in a democratic country that gives us those rights, that we will work for the justice of our lands. But whether or not the kings of the earth listen to us, we will keep preaching the kingdom of heaven. We'll keep calling individuals to come and join the true kingdom. We will keep finding our true citizenship, not in this nation, but in that heavenly nation, in that heavenly city, 
where justice is perfected and where by the king's death we find true forgiveness and where by his resurrection we find true life and where by his return we will all find true judgment. And so before we proceed on in our gathering this morning to be singing more, I thought it was time for us to be praying. I asked Sarah to lead us in prayer, but Sarah's sick, so Andrew has jumped in at the last minute and he's going to lead us in prayer. And uh, let me start praying and then Andrew will continue on praying and leading us in prayer as we pray for nations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death on our behalf and his resurrection and the pouring out of his spirit. We pray, Father, that each one of us here as individuals might know of that forgiveness of sins and that new life, that eternal life that he has won for us, that each one of us here may be citizens of his kingdom, and as citizens of his kingdom, Father, we do pray for the kingdoms of this world. We thank you for our land and pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen.